Hello and welcome to The Spectator Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, literary editor of The Spectator, and this week we're going to be talking about a subject that bulks very large in many people's lives and arguably equally large in literature, which is the English boarding school. I'm joined in the studio by Ascender Maxton Graham, who's written a book called Terms and Conditions, which is a discussion of four decades of girls' boarding schools from 1930. 39 to 79. 39 to 79, I apologise. And by Alex Renton, whose new book, Stiff Upper Lip, takes, we can say, a kind of slightly less rosy view of things and discusses the endemic problems of abuse, physical and sexual, in the history of the English boarding school. Alex, if I may, I'd like to come to you first. Can you tell me how this book started? Because it, it sort of sprang out of some journalism you did three or four years ago, didn't it? Yes, that's that's right. Uh, my own prep school, my rather posh Eaton Feeding prep school, Ashdown House, was has been subject to a whole series of allegations uh, and which are still working their way through the courts, so I can't go too much into those. But uh, I wrote about this and, and the sort of slightly wider context of what seemed to me, you know, as the child of 11 generations of boarders, a, a really interesting phenomenon among you know, our class, which, which is a, you know, a belief, a, a collusion, if you like, in, in, with the fact, with the idea that that some degree of misery was important in, in, in a good education. And I got a fantastic, a just shocking email load in response. I, I think by an awful lot of people who, who I think had never felt able to speak before, because of course, you know, don't sneak and, and a murder are quite core to the, 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 uh, the traditional boarding school code. And I investigated some, I mean, I'm an investigative journalist, you know, most normally, and, and I investigated some of these stories, a big thing on Gordonston School. But, I, but then eventually the paper I was working for ran out of interest and money because these are expensive. And I, and, and I really was thinking, well, what on earth do I do with all this stuff? I mean, a lot, a lot needs to go to the police. And, and a lot of these people have a story which hasn't really been told in non-fiction terms, I think, not, not at least since the 70s. And Isenda, your book, I'd say, is a much sunnier kind of account for the most part. I is think it is. It really say? is a mixture. I mean, I think mo- most of it is li- as sad as it is, as it is funny because the, the two are so intertwined with boarding schools. Um, for me, mm. I, I am also. I was also a boarder from the age of 9 to 12 and I do remember that moment of shock and uh, the differentness between the books that I've been reading as a child, lovely Angela Brazil <laughs> um, stories, all about the romance and rapture of a boarding school on the Welsh cliffs where you went for a, on a Blackberry foray on a Saturday afternoon and the absolute shock of being in a dormitory full of really quite nasty girls and a terrifying matron barking commands and that's never left me also I've met so many people who've been have been boarders I've learned to sort of spot them at a distance on the, on the, on the pavement and and, and so it was to, to get to this ph- phenomenon of what is a boarder and how, how can you tell one and what how do they shape how does going to board shape people's lives for better and worse and do you if I unless I misrepresent you Alex your position is pretty much that certainly boarding from seven and very possibly boarding even from 13 is kind of actively damaging to people's emotional development. I, I, I think it can be. I, I, I mean, I'm not. I'm not a banner of things by nature. I, I, I mean, I, I think you know, enough evidence has been amassed to show that it that separating children that abruptly and that young from those who who naturally love them and and can listen to them and hug them you know, is very risky indeed. And it is a uniquely British thing. I mean, no one else in the world 
does anything like it and never has, apart from an ancient Sparta, perhaps. But, <laughs> uh, you know, it's not intrinsically damaging. Some people's home lives may be so, and I've spoken to some, who, you know, were so rackety that, that it was actually a better thing for them. What I do know is that in the enormous uh, field that is now child psychology and child development science, there is not a single practitioner who will say pre, pre-teen boarding is anything like a good idea. What we both discover is, is how different it is for boys and girls, and that's what I found so interesting about my book and then yes, I was reading yours. That, yeah, so, and, and whether it's worse, worse, worse for boys or different for boys. Mm, that's um, interesting. That. Yeah. Although girls can be very cruel, of course. Yes, yeah, so people say what, what the, what the physical abuse in boys' schools was replaced by emotional abuse in, in girls' schools. People say that, yes, that, um, that boys are, just don't do spite in quite the way girls do. I mean, one of the things that's almost sort of, I mean, it's a very darkly comical in Alex's book and more obviously lightly comical in yours, etc. Is this sense that you you do have in common that for many, many decades, indeed probably for most of their existences, most private boarding schools were not very good at educating children, that they turned out people who were, you know, it was character first and sport and all these things, that the idea that you might be taught anything remotely useful or, you know, that would expand your mind was sort of tamped down. Yes, it wasn't in your book, Alex, that the schools were the, the, the seed of, of British Philistinism. Yes, and I mean, and actually, I mean, in the, the, I mean, the most fun part of the book for me, and there is, as you say, there isn't much fun in it, is actually looking at, at what was written around, you know, during the great boom in the schools in the mm-hmm. 1890s. Is, you know, it, that was very deliberate. I mean, the, the grand uh, theocratic um, headmasters um, who wrote great tracts about how you educate uh, an elite for the empire were determined that, you know, that n- knowledge was, was number five on the list of, yes. of, of needs way behind character. Well, they did, and, get, uh, very good at, they did uh, get very good at Latin, I have to say. Boys yeah. did, yes. unlike All girls. very useful for yes. running Indian. But he, even my dad, who was at Eton in the early 50s and a scholar, I mean, he said 50 50 to 60 percent of his time was spent on classics, and, and you um, could argue that's actually very, very a brilliant grounding. Well, for me, I was doing that. I was doing the Bunsen burner count, asking people a if they'd ever heard of a Bunsen burner, b whether there were any Bunsen burners at their school, and yes, I did ask some Hatherup Castle girls whether they had a lab. They s- said, "What on earth do you mean by a lab?" And I said, a "Laboratory," and they said, "Oh, I thought you meant a Labrador." <laughs> I love that. And story. that is that classic that it says it all. I, really. I, sh- I should say that in, in my my very dark book, Isanda really kindly sent me an early early manuscript of hers and some of some of my best stories, uh, and my most uh, my, my lighter stories about women were provided by Isanda and slotted in. in um, yes, but then you do say the pun- yes, that the punishment of girls wasn't quite as awful as the punishment of boys. It was more being made to being humiliated. No, I think that's right. And I, I mean, interestingly, in that sort of great email load that I had from people, of course, people didn't write to me saying they'd had happy experiences at school. That wasn't wasn't what they were after. But about 30 percent of them were from women. And, and, and there are tales of, of physical and sexual abuse, I'm afraid, there, too. But you no, know, that psychological cruelty and my three sisters at Rodine would back that up. That is really intriguing. And there's one one of my correspondents talked about being put on Coventry for a year and a half. It's quite a lot. Yeah. What are the what are the peculiar effects of video books to make me think because you talk about the way in which people sort of normalize their own experiences and say, you know, it never did me any harm, it was good for me, you know, I must have felt a bit miserable, but that built my character. Is what looks about I mean, I did have a boarding school experience myself from thirteen, not from seven. And I kind of look back on it as very benign, but by the end of your book I was thinking, Am I involved in some terrible psychological con on myself? At the end of my book or his enders? At the end of, at the end of your end book. Of my book. Yes. You know, clearly there are those, and I can only really go by, by people who wrote wrote directly to me, who, who 
you know, are utterly ambivalent about the experience. They can see that it made them people that they're very proud to be and often very successful in the world's terms. But they can equally see that, and they say this really, because they're articulate people, they see this very movingly. They can see there's a, a child they left behind uh, who's never whose needs have never really been addressed and, and that they can see they haven't been very good at things like marriages and getting on with their children. So, so that high achieving emotionally tarnished person is really quite common. I think it's total chance whether you happen to go to a school run by a kind person or happen to go to a school where run by yes some maybe that's part frustrated of the, what goes the heart of it take, is that taking out their they own weren't regulated very well mm. so. yeah, exactly <laughs> i think that's true and i mean the other thing that's true is, is that clearly the schools were and are a very good investment i mean despite the, the the potential damage you know they do buy entry as they have since the 19th century straight to to the the group that runs Britain. If you've got £350,000 to spend, it's, it, it's clearly worthwhile. But, but I do think, I mean, Sandra and I might disagree that, you know, you and I both went before we were 10 years old. I, I think that fact of separating from those who who trust, who you trust totally. Yes, you did say you learned that you learned that parental yeah. love has its limit. That's where you learn that parental love has its limit. Yeah. Which, again, I don't quite agree with. I think we, their parents did do it for love. But I do see they also did also go to France. <laughs> and a lovely holiday in France while we were stuck away. <laughs> well, you can, <laughs> no, no, you can no, be loving and have a holiday. Yes. And I'm convinced my mother did it for, for love. And uh, she, she loves me then now. I do think she was wrong, though. And I think she'd now agree. Poor thing. I, I, <laughs> I mean, one of the things that's very interesting, I think, about, about this whole phenomenon, it goes through the way you've described it, Sandra, as well, is that the idea of boarding school has been so serially reproduced. I mean, at one end of the scale in the kind of, Orwell's descriptions of St Cyprian's in such such with a joy or yes. Dother Boys Hall in Dickens. Yes. But at the other there is St Trinian's, there's um, people you know, there's people. Tom Brown's school days, mm. there's a whole literature that's reproduced this idea of these places as being fun. And girls lap, absolutely lap them up. I mean, I did as a child. There, I mean, 60 chalet school books, 40 by Angela Brazil. I mean, countless, they were churning them out one a year because there was a, such a thirst for this institutional literature, which is where you just, you, as a reader, you think yourself into this. And were these read and written by people who had been through boarding very school themselves? Very good question. Ina Blythe did not go to boarding school. Angela Brazil went to the very end of her teens, probably to a very nice place. So they weren't proper boarders in the way that we, uh, we would know them. Those girls' stories I read. I suppose they are. They make perfect. They're a sort of fantasy, they're, maybe. Of they're, they're a wonderful way. London enclosed worlds that we can step into in fiction. And I'm reading one now called "Murder Most Unladylike" by Robin Stevens. And That's a, a mar- great title. Yeah, mar- <laughs> um, marvelous. And people are still doing it, like J.K. Rowling. Well, interestingly, J.K. Rowling, who you know, who who some people. I mean, the great decline in in boarding numbers uh, in the 70s and 80s and and 90s is people were got less rich and and also perhaps woke up to some aspects of, of childcare that had been ignored before. That reversed just as rolling Harry Potter sales began to peak and has been stable ever since. At about and it's true that she saw, she saw and sees the romance of these places. Do you see her as a sort of inadvertent villain of the piece? A villain? I don't know. I, I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm reluctant. I think boarding is, you know, an, a fascinating aspect of British upper class history. You know, and, and the way, and, and as you say, it spread around the world, and the way the way the world was organised during the twentieth century. Villains, and I think the most interesting thing about it is how culture can trump good sense, even maternal love. I mean, that that's what really intrigues me. Yes, you do it because everyone else does it. You send your child because everyone else yes, does. Yes, in full love. I mean, mm. it, it, I mean, I think the other aspect, of course, you know, I mean, Zender's book is one that shows very clearly one of the good things that came from it. The fantastic genre of British humour. 
much exploited by Monty Python. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, it was Monty Python were the bad at Games Club, weren't they? That, that yes, was, yes. That, that was, you said that was the foundation of tolerant liberalism in Britain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's just not, going, not enjoying games and hanging around in the classroom being rude about <laughs> sporting and, rude about, and reading Lenin and, and smoking cigarettes. No, I, I mean, a whole, whole, whole group of people who were actually... And not for not being able to hold down marriages. I mean, my, the women I interviewed have had the longest, happiest marriages of people <laughs> anyone I've ever come across. They've had 60-year-long stable marriages because they were taught not to put themselves first in a way all the time but to, to think of others and make a but that's interesting but then also i mean i mean on a, in your book you talk really interestingly about, about sex education and, and you know there's a load of hilarious stories about boys and girls utterly incompetent sex education. Not, not knowing anything i mean which starts in the victorian age with believing you were going to die if you masturbated but and i love particularly you know, that the women in your book who talk of their utter hot shock and horror when they first saw a man naked i, I mean it's interesting that that should then make a long and good marriage in all your interviewees. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? But it certainly yes. does exactly. Well, I'm on the principle that if you, you know, can survive four years in that sort of environment, and you've had crushes and pashes, you see, to build up your romantic side, crushes on yes. pa- pashes on your sixth former, who you left strawberries on her pillow, and that just, I think, instilled girls with a wonderful sense of romance. Yes, the crushes and pashes in the boys' school more problematic, mm. I think, in practice. <laughs> I think that's true. <laughs> Well, I think that may be true, yeah. Well, I don't know. I think, you know, the, the, the passionate love among boys, when you think of, you know, the whole horde of great mid-20th century poets that came out of particularly repressive schools, uh, Auden and Spender and so all seemed to go to Gresham's, all hated it, all compared it to Nazism, and end up being some of, often homosexual, obviously, but some of the most romantic and and thoughtful poets about the business of being a human being that... that Britain has known. Yes, yeah. you said that C.S. Lewis said that having that kind of physical bit of headmasters hugging boys was, was the only nook or cranny in a dry desert of dry desert yes. of school. And how could sexual love be more of a crime between boys than than than, than bullying was? I mean, it, 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 no, C.S. Lewis is fantastic and, and very interesting in, in Surprised by Oh, I love the way he said hanging around in a boarding school. There's so much waiting hanging about. It felt like living in a railway station. Yeah, I think that rings for all of us, yes. <laughs> now, how much do you think, I mean, this is a question for both of you, really, that the institutions that are described in both of your books, because, you know, how much they've changed... I mean, we know that they've got much, much more expensive and we know that they now pay more attention to teaching people things that might be useful. That's quite um, fundamental, yes. But <laughs> do you think there is a sort of golden thread of absolute continuity in terms of the way that their ideological setup and their, you know, emotional effects? Mm, that's a good question about boys' preps. I mean, I've visited Cheltenham and, and St Mary's Ascot since writing the book and they are, of course bastions of facilities and of course the girls can email and telephone their parents at the slightest dent in their happiness which in the olden days they were just completely cut off and that's the huge difference behind it was behind closed doors now and now it's behind open doors yes i think that you know clearly they've changed enormously and and, and some of the, the worst crimes that, that i detailed you know i hope are physically impossible in the schools now but i mean well so one thing that hasn't changed i mean the, the habit of sending children under 10 and there's still four or five thousand that go i i still can't see that that is not intrinsically risky the other thing that's changed massively and not necessarily to the good is the cost so when I went to Eton in 1974, it cost the equivalent of £11,000 today. It now, before extras, would cost 35 So I think that fact that the schools will become havens not for the aspiring middle class, as, as they were since the 1890s, but just of the super rich, 
is going to make a huge change and may indeed lead to their downfall because if you don't have the support of the middle class for this, frankly, bizarre system, they die. And my, you know, those... But people seem to want it. People seem to want it for their children so much that they will even go as far. God so loved his only son, mother so loved their child, they will fork out, bankrupt themselves because there's say something in this place that's priceless, that's just... Yes, that's true and they still will and and half of, and despite the fact that 30% of borders today come from, from abroad, usually Russia and China, half the borders had parents who boarded as well, according to, to the school zone stats. But Yes, they're trying to, there's sort of slight backlash about having too many foreign pupils now because they see that it's actually, A, making the foreign ones not to want to go there because they want to be educated with the British they want with and B, make British well, that's in the grand tradition. As St Paul's until the 1970s had a, had a, a limit on the number of Jewish pupils it would allow. Oh, it. Too many, <laughs> too many. <laughs> so, so yeah, pupil ethnic quotas have always been around. I think that, that is very different. I mean, and and I have. I mean, I've talked to lots of people who are at, at the great boarding schools now or, or have just left them, and you know, the effect of Russian oligarchs' children coming in with invitations, with unlimited credit cards to to pay for everything, and invitations to the super yacht in the summer is, mm. is and children lining up on the front drive with to order their takeaway pizzas on saturday nights <laughs> yes exactly so the, so i think no yeah very different in in many ways yeah i mean what i'm wondering is whether the you know in some ways what we've described as kind of quite an ossified class system that's been perpetuated through these institutions for whatever 150 200 years in a certain way now we're entering this period of kind of massive global capital and an, a sort of international class who exist above and outside the sort of English class system means that actually the schools will simply become sort of irrelevant in a way that could even be positive to the perpetuation of a particular I mean, I think, class yes, structure exactly. it's in going the to UK. Become, yes, it's going to, I mean, especially if VATs put on <laughs> private, private schools to pay for free school meals. I mean, will that make it even more expensive and it'll just price out anybody except this international rich who are just in a, in a bubble of their own? Yes, I think that's right. I, I, I mean, you, you approach the area... And it's interesting watching the schools franchise themselves around the UAE and into Singapore and Shanghai. Now, I, I mean, I mean, clearly, you know, the school, what schools that were you know, for for the well-to-do solicitor or, or even the you know the market town doctor's children are now are now for the the Bentley buying class. So, so they will you know become a niche, you know, an important industry. I mean, I mean, uh, here in Scotland where I live, I mean, I mean, boarding school income from foreigners is is, is pretty crucial to our tottering economy. And what do you think of their charitable status? Ah. <laughs> uh, you know, it's really you know as a story of of the, the politics around the schools and the way the schools have managed to resist any intrusion from the from from government for for 150 years. Charitable status is fascinating. Labour governments have promised since 1945 to remove this utter complete anachronism that schools should be charities, and no one's ever managed to do it. And I don't think Michael Gove will manage. And to if that charitable all. status went, that would be the that would be the end, wouldn't it? I mean, they wouldn't be able to carry on. And, well, that would be, it, well, and that would be the loss of these wonderful old institutions with their turrets and their shimmy gyms yeah. and everything, which I think is very much part of the flavour of British life. Well, the, the centre of the, the architecture will still be there. Holiday flats. But, uh, like uh, tours of Colditz or something. Yes. <laughs> I think the schools take much more out of the state than they put into it. I really do. I mean, and not just in financial terms, but also in terms of the, the problems with equality in, the, in this in this society. Uh, and I'm interested in just how 
angry and arrogant they are about any any attempt to suggest reasonable reforms. I was with a, the headmaster of, of Loretto the other day talking about the VAT and charitable status thing, and he said, and he said nonsense, what there should be is tax relief on school fees. So no budging there. <laughs> what do you think, Isabel? <laughs> well, I, I just think it's already, it's, it's, it's already reached the pitch of how expensive it can be, and any more will just mark, mark the end. I know it's a joke when they all have to be seen to be involving the local <laughs> primary school and outreach programmes, and it is all slightly... It's like absurd. But I think there's, you know, as a customer, maybe, maybe, you know, and I'm a customer of private schools here in Edinburgh as well for my children, but we need to be a little more sceptical. The reason that private schools, but not boarding schools in your case. Sorry? You, you said your children's private school, but not boarding schools. Not right? boarding schools, right. no. The, well, I, there is boarding there. And, and in fact, my 18-year-old my has boarded for the two terms before his exams at his own choice, but uh, much to my distress, I have to say. But, but, but that, just um, shows, that just shows what lovely places they are now and how attractive that, well, that can be. Well, it shows that he was persuaded that to do well in his exams, which he wants to very badly, he needed to be at school 24 hours a day. But I, I did, you know, he certainly wasn't frightened by it. But he is 18, as I say. But, I do but, see that four, that four o'clock till nine o'clock time of day is at its best wonderful when you're in an institution of, yeah. of, of like-minded people. Did you send your own children? I sent two, I was three, three, two went to, to Winchester and the other one, A, through bankruptcy and B, through modernness, is, is going day. And I, so I've seen both and I've, I've known the, the trauma of saying goodbye on Sunday nights, but I've seen the slight boredom of a, of a, of a weekday Friday, of a weekday Wednesday afternoon at home. Yes, I, I mean, I, I, gosh, I miss my son. But luckily I have my 12-year-old who is at home every night and will be this evening. Just on, on being a healthily sceptical customer, as Sandra and I both m- might be, the reason the prices have gone up so much, I don't think is because of costs. They've gone up way above RPI. And the OFT found 10 years ago that the schools were, had, op- op- had operated a sort of Barclays Bank-style cartel of price-fixing and tried to find them. I, I mean, that. This notion that these are, these are institutions that are wholly philanthropic is, is sort of wrong, you know. They do make some profit here and there. Anyway, Senator Maxim Graham and Alex Renton, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. That was fun, thanks.